uh, sent in the mail. People sent all kinds of crazy hate mail. Um, I've had people spit on my car. They've yelled at me in the street. Um, you know, I mean, there's definite, you know, definite hate. People hate me. They want me to die. They, they want me to die in an avalanche. They want me to get shot in the head. They want my dog to die. I am Caleb Dinsey, a precision ag specialist living in Aurora, South Dakota, and you are listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we talk with a man named David Lesh. And if you go look this guy up in the regular popular press, in all of the environmental news, all of the places where people in high society uh, talk about what the goings on are, they think he is a straight up pariah. He has been framed as uh, you know a terrible person for the environment, for doing all sorts of awful things. But I would say he is actually an environmental troll, and he is exposing a lot of the hypocrisies that people have um, that want to wear around the fancy, nice uh, logos on their winter wear, and they want to be seen as being environmentally conscious and more woke or aware than everybody else. And uh, this is a wild interview. He talks about a life that most of us can never imagine having. And, uh, and why he does what he does and how he turned his ability to not care what other people think into marketing for a company that basically now runs itself. So this is a very, very interesting interview. And I hope you feel like you get to meet some pretty cool people on this podcast. I was uh, had David brought to my attention because of the Articulate Ventures Network. People say, hey, this is an interesting person I read about. You ought to interview them. I would love to hear about their inner voice and why they make the decisions that they do. And inside of the Articulate Ventures Network, we're always pounding on new ideas and experimenting. And if you're the type of person that wants to have a community of people that are pushing the envelope, that are trying out and experimenting in all kinds of places, tomorrow we're going to get into virtual reality with a bunch of people from other networks like Jim Rutt's Game B group and we're just going to mix up and meet other people and have conversations in virtual reality. So these are the kinds of things that can happen if you join the Articulate Ventures Network. So if you're the type of person that wants to do a little bit of exploring, you want a community, then definitely go to network.articulate.ventures to sign up. Also, you will notice in the show link below that we finally have a merch store where you can buy um, ideas that we talk about on this podcast, everything from Damon to Up the Graph. And uh, we're excited to share it with you. If you're a person that has wanted to support the podcast, I guess get requests all the time, but maybe you're thinking the network, you don't want any more uh, social media or distractions in your life. That's okay. Uh, You can support the podcast by checking out the link below. So without further ado, let us go to this wild interview with David Lesh. David Lesh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you came across my radar because a friend of mine sent me a New Yorker article, which the New Yorker very cleverly uh, did not say this themselves. They just quoted somebody else as referring to you as the Rocky Mountain Pariah. And I don't know very many people that have had entire New Yorker articles written about them. How did you feel like that was uh, was a reflection? Did it really capture who you are or were they unfair to you? Um. So nothing that he said was unsure or unfair but it only captures one you know aspect of me or one part of my life one one part of our marketing one part of my company it's it's relatively one-sided and i think that it had to be one-sided otherwise 
he would have lost a little bit of credibility, I think, with his readers. If he was like, oh, hey, you guys have him all wrong. He's actually this really nice guy. And he does all this other cool stuff. Then the whole article would just be like a fluff piece and I think would have lost a lot of its uh, validity and weight. And so I think that he had to kind of choose um, a little bit of a, of a harder line. Um, and even even though the, the kind of the angle that he took, I don't think was like super brutal, you know? So I, I it definitely does not, you know, obviously capture me or my life or who I am or my company or any of that, but, um, but he, it was fair. I'd say that. So it's interesting whenever you're reading an article that you don't have any control over, like, do you have the sense of, uh, Oh shit. As you're reading, like while you're going through and being like, Oh man, or no, it doesn't bother you at all. No, I don't give a fuck. I mean, I, I, I let go of what people think about me a long time ago and my life improved significantly when I did. Um, when I first started the company in 2009, I was much more concerned about what people thought about me, my reputation as a pro skier in the industry, um, what you know people said about the company, our marketing, the quality of the products. It really affected me when people would uh, you know, talk shit on the internet. And after a while, the company kept doing well. The more people talk shit, the more our sales increased, the more you know we became popular, people heard about us. Um, and so I just realized that the company has momentum and um, no amount of you know kind of shit talking is going to to affect that and actually quite the opposite they'll probably you know improve it i uh I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because that actually opens up a door because there's very few people i think that can legitimately say they do not care what other people think of them but i think that there is a lot of evidence that would suggest uh that you do but before we get into that like who are you you were a former professional skier you're a photographer you run uh like a you know ski wear apparel company what else am i missing in that description Oh, I mean, my life has been interesting. You know, I was born in Chicago, uh, grew up in India until I was six. English was my third language. Um, just I was a, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed white boy in India running around with all my Indian friends. I was the only white kid in a town of like a few million people. Um, started going to school like very young, much younger than, you know, in America. So by the time I, I moved to America when I was six, I already could read, write, cursive, uh, math, like the whole deal. So for me, like kindergarten was super boring. And of course I was bored and started, you know, causing trouble and making jokes and, and fucking around. So um, always had like, you know, behavioral issues. Um, I'm sure I'm like ADD to some extent makes me productive and always doing stuff. Um, but, you know, grew up like very broke uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, artist, uh, hippie, musician, parents. Um, and uh, I wasn't the cool kid. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have the cool clothing or the shoes. I was sort of a reject at school. Um, and that was hard for me just to, to, I really wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be able to go on trips like the other kids vacation, go to, you know, on ski trips and go to uh, Aspen and the Caribbean and do stuff with the other, you know, kids, I was in a pretty affluent area. Um, so I kind of felt like I was missing out on a lot, uh, growing up, um, I had a very like tumultuous childhood. My dad was a fucking piece of shit and my mom was disconnected and it was just a, it was just a messy, messy ordeal. They divorced in middle school. Um, I got into tons of trouble. I had ankle bracelets. I was in and out of jail. I was, you know, on probation. I was stealing cars. I was just like a hoodlum, hoodlum kid. Um, moved out uh, on my own in high school, senior year of high school, only one in uh, a high school of 2,500 people to have their own house. So of course it was like the party house. Um, and that year was like probably one of the better years of my life. I had tons of friends. I was, you know, one of the, the cool kids. I was, um, you know, working two jobs, selling weed on the side, passing, you know, my, my high school classes. Um, and I was, I was happy. I was free. I was away from my parents. I could do what I wanted to do. Um, I had a little bit of money and, 
that was like the first, I, the first time that I really remember like being happy was probably like senior high school. Um, the first I, time you were ever happy? I mean, I was happy as a kid for sure. I, I think, I think I was happy. I had a very good early childhood. My parents were very loving and creative. I was doing lots of, you know, art and, and music and exploring India with my parents, um, you know, learning the languages and, and you know, I, America was this unknown place to me. I had no concept of, of America at the time. And uh, my sister was born in India. She's a, um, she could have dual citizenship if she wants. Anyway, um, you know, it was a very interesting kind of unique uh, upbringing, which I think has helped made me who I am, but it didn't set me up very well for American culture and American society. And, you know, it just, I, I know I'd never seen a movie. I, we didn't have a television. I didn't listen to, there wasn't radio. I mean, it, we, <laughs> We had a toilet that was like a hole in the ground. You know, I just was totally disconnected from, from all of that. I remember seeing one of the first movies that I remember seeing was I'll get I'll, I'll get back to your your original. Question. You can go as long as uh, you want. This is interesting. Going on, going on a tangent here. One of one of the original movies I remember seeing, and I don't, I don't remember if it was like first or second grade, but it was um, The Princess Bride. Did you ever see that movie? Oh sure, yeah. It scared the living shit out of me. I remember seeing that humongous rat. Do you remember there's that humongous rat scene that's like chasing them through the jungle or something? It's been decades since I've seen it, but I remember there was a huge rat. I remember it very vividly to this day. I haven't seen the movie since I was whatever, six or seven years old, eight years old. And I was so scared. They showed it, you know, in, in the classroom, there was, there was, you know, they showed it in front of all the kids. I was so scared that I had to leave the classroom. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I had not seen movies before. I had not seen you know, music videos and pop culture and like, you know, it's not, not all of it was totally new to me. So I was totally out of my element. Where I was in my element was when I was a kid in India, running around just with my Indian friends, you know, being a little Indian boy. So from ages like, you know, whatever, zero to five or six, I was happy. I remember, you know, my parents have audio recordings, uh, pictures from that time. I think I was like a very happy, um, good little kid. But then when I came to America, it was like total culture shock, didn't fit in, had trouble making friends, was the brokest kid in school. Um, and I think that I just remember being picked on constantly. Um, and I remember being unhappy um, from, you know, the time we came to America until uh, senior year of high school, for sure. And there was, you know, some, some gray area there, you know, throughout high school, it kind of started to improve a little bit. And I started making a few friends and started, you know, dating a few girls and that kind of thing. But um, it, it, I would say senior year of high school is the first time I really remember being happy since I was like very young. And then when you were in high school, what are people telling you, you, they think you're going to become, and what did you imagine you were going to become? Oh, I was for sure destined to be a career criminal. Um, all the, the people that I was hanging out with are, you know, to this day, most of them are fucking in jail. Some of them are dead. Um, none of them, you know, the, the, the kids that I was like doing stuff with, they're not, they're not doing well. Um, in life. There's a few people who've kind of pulled themselves out of it and they're, you know, they've got decent jobs or they're doing construction or, um, you know, something like that, but nobody's like really killing it. And so what did you end up doing then after high school? Um, so after high school, I was homeless that whole next summer. Um, that summer after high school, I just like cruised around uh, America, North America. Um, sorry, my dog is barking. Um, cruise around all of North America and uh, lived out of my car. I was hopping freight trains for a few weeks along the West Coast. I went to Canada, I went to Mexico. I learned how to surf, went down South. I went uh, to the East Coast in New York. I just was like all over the place. 
Um, and uh, then after all that, I decided that I was going to move somewhere where I could pursue skiing. Um, and that was near a city. And I wanted to get as far away from, you know, Wisconsin as I possibly could. So uh, I chose Portland, Oregon. There weren't too many options of metropolitan areas that were near skiing. Um, and so I decided I actually never even been to Portland. I'd like driven past it years before that. And I'd never like actually really been there, um, packed up my car and just moved, uh, moved to Portland. And, uh, so eventually you became a professional skier and, uh, and were pretty successful there. It seems like. Yeah. I mean, I never made a ton of money. I wasn't ever the best skier. I had never won, you know, the biggest comps or was in the biggest movies, but I was, I was, you know, I, I was, am a very good skier and I was mostly a photo video skier. So we shoot for, you know, magazines and for movies. And I'd put together, you know, a video part every year. Um, and I'd get content for my sponsors. That was kind of my, my gig. And, uh, and then at some point you decided, I don't really like, uh, the, the sponsorship deals that I'm getting or the, the way this is all working out. I'm, I'm trying to get you to talk about the part where you kind of separate away from regular culture, but it seems like you maybe never were there. Yeah. I don't think I was ever a part of regular culture. I think that I, for, for a period tried to, um, tried to kind of fit in, um, because that's, I think, what I saw that I had to do to sort of, um, you know, be accepted and, and be happy, and make friends and, you know, date girls and whatever. So there was definitely a time where I, like, really tried hard to, to kind of, you know, fit in. Um, and I think that um, just kind of as I've, you know, matured and um, grown up and, you know, become more uh, comfortable with myself and, and my place in the world. Um, and the more successful that I've been doing it and the less that I care what other people think about it, um, the more I've kind of just found my own path and, um, none of it is, is super traditional. Just the way I live my life is, is not traditional in, in any regard. Um, and I think the more that I have seen, um, you know, me be more happy by departing from that, the more I kind of depart from that, where, you know, just your, your whole life, they, they shove this down your throat of what you're supposed to do to be happy. You graduate high school, you go to college for four years, you get an internship, you get a, you know, a decent nine to five job, paying you 40 grand a year, you work your way up, uh, you live and, you know, eventually you, you meet a, a chick and you get engaged, you get married, you buy a house with a white picket fence and a two car garage, you have two and a half kids and you're, you know, your lab dog. And, you know, that's, that's what you're supposed to, to do to be happy. You get your two weeks of vacation every year and you go to the fucking Caribbean or Mexico to an all-inclusive five-star resort, or you go on some shitty cruise. And that's like, that's what's supposed to make you happy. And I think all of that um, originates from Sears Roebuck. Um, when the Sears Roebuck, you know, catalog was in the, whatever the fifties, sixties, uh, all these world war II vets were coming back from war and they had, uh, you know, their, their paycheck from the government and, nothing really to, to do. They, so what, what did they do? Sears Roebuck started uh, marketing to these people. Get married, find yourself a cute chick, buy one of our little pop-up Sears Roebuck houses where you know, they live, go up in two days or whatever. And that's where these, these subdivisions kind of you know, started coming from. And buy these appliances for your house, you know, the color TV and the microwave and the oven. And you know, the chick buys her fucking hair curlers and all this shit. And you buy all these things from us um, and you will be happy. And so they sold, I think an entire generation um, on what the definition of happiness is and how to achieve that. And that definitely still lingers to this day. 
Um, I think it's a, you know, it's a significant part of our culture, um, what you're supposed to do to be happy. And that is jammed down your fucking throat since you're two years old via television, internet, you know, media, your teachers, your parents who, you know, were of this generation, all this stuff, it's just sort of, you know, passed, passed down to you. Um, and none of it necessarily is true. It's not, you know, maybe, maybe some people are, are happy by that. And I think I do actually know some people who, who are happy by, by all of that. Um, but a lot of people aren't, and there's not really another, another avenue that's presented uh, to you besides that, that, you know, Hey, you could also maybe do this, or maybe do this, maybe this will make you happy. Like, try this. It's, it's no, you know, you need to be monogamous. You need to have your two kids. You need to, you know, work your nine to five job and hopefully, you know, work your way up at some point. You know, it's just, it's all bullshit. There's a fascinating video. Um, it's a documentary that was made in like the middle 1960s about um, Webster Grove, which is a town not very far from my house, maybe 20, maybe 15 minutes from my house. And uh, it's fascinating because they're, they go in and they talk to all these high school kids and they say, what is it that you want? Like, what do you dream of? And they're like, I spend all my money on my car. I want to live down the street from where I live right now. I want to um, have a two story house like and it's interesting. The, the reason that I find it so fascinating is you would never hear a high school kid say that now. Like if, if no high school kid that's living in the United States above the poverty line would say, I want to live down the street and I want X, Y, Z. And it reminds me of uh, this. There's a philosopher named. I think that there are some people who would say that. I think that you and I and educated people, especially in cities, wouldn't say that. But if you were to actually talk to people in rural areas, I mean, maybe i don't know how forthcoming they'd be in admitting that but most of them are going to end up moving down the street from their parents living in the same little town and so whether or not that makes them happy i don't know but that is what they end up choosing to do yeah i told i i misspoke because i think there's an idea about um anywhere people and somewhere people so anywhere people they have this idea that the that the I, I want to go move to the city. I want to be a part of a cosmopolitan life. I'm able to make transactions. If I don't like where I'm at, I can go somewhere else. And there are somewhere people that say, hey, where I'm living isn't that great. It's not that scenic. But this is everyone that I know and everybody that I care about. But I think that our our typical like popular culture in high school is very rare to find that. But I, you, fair enough. Sure. I, I think that it is for sure changing, you know. And I mean, I haven't been in high school for whatever, 15 or 20 years, but I think, I think I'm sure it is changing, but there's still some remnant of that. I think that continues to exist in our culture. Yeah. And there's this guy named Rene Girard, who's a philosopher that says, you know, one of the core problems of being a human being is that we don't actually know what we should want. And so what we do as human beings is just like a chimpanzee. We look to see what are the other chimpanzees looking at. We say, oh, that's that's the highest thing that they can go towards. So I'm going to want that, too. But I'm struck by your situation, because if you are not if you are able to, like, break away from this, then you have to be listening to some voice about what what it is that is happiness or what it is that you want. Where what is that voice that you have that tells you which way to go then? I think some of it is innate. I think I was, you know, just born who, who I am. I think also some of it comes from having uh, hippie parents, uh, free thinking, non-traditional parents who never chased the money. They were just, you know, broke their whole lives um, and who always um, who, who always instilled a, um, a sense of it's better to do the things that you love than the things that make you money. 
Um, and so that, that sort of mentality of just following your passion, um, I think is what led me to where I am because originally, you know, I just wanted to not be broke like my parents. That was, that was my only real go on life. And I had no connections. I had no real idea of how to get there. And so my only real successful, um, you know, male role models in my life that were, that were making money um, and who were living kind of the life that I thought that I wanted to live um, were my, my two uncles, my dad's brother and my mom's brother. My dad's brother is a cardiologist, you know, lifetime of school and fucking kissing ass and studying and just, you know, that whole deal, which was like totally not my, my path. There was like, I fucking hated school. I was like trying to, you know, fight my way through four years of college over a period of like eight or 10 years. I mean, it was just not, not the way that I wanted to learn things. So going to school for another, however many years to be a doctor was just like out of the question. Um, so that was like, okay, no, my, my mother's, uh, brother is a, um, was a, a business consultant. So that was a little bit more of an attainable path for me. And I was always interested in business and I saw business equating to challenges and freedom and, um, you know, some making some money and some success, you know, success and networking, that kind of thing. So his path was got his business degree, got his master's in business in Kellogg school in Chicago or whatever, um, got a job in a consulting firm, worked his way up, eventually made partner, started his own firm. Um, you know, started making whatever, at least a few hundred grand a year, got a wife, kids, like had a dope, dope setup, you know, the nice house in the suburbs with the Beamer and the, you know, the, the hot wife and the two kids. And I was like, okay, that's, that's pretty good. Like maybe I could, can do that. So my general path in life until I had started my company was trying to fight my way through college. Um, and then I was, I, at the time I wasn't accepted to the business school, uh, in Boulder. So I was a, technically an art major business minor. They wouldn't let me to business school because my grades weren't good enough or whatever. Um, and so my plan was to graduate with an art degree and then maybe try to get like a master's in business at some point. And the meantime, I was following my dream in life, which was to be a pro skier. And I knew I was never going to make any money doing it, but it was like a dream come true. I was traveling around the world on somebody else's dime going to all these incredible places, you know, making really amazing friends. And, you know, I was in great shape. I was, I was skiing all over the world. I was pushing myself. I was learning things. It was, it was great. I was also helping with marketing. I was taking photos. I was, um, you know, shooting video, editing video. So I was able to kind of, um, you know, express myself creatively while also, um, you know, making a, a very shitty living. Um, and so I think that me following, um, my passion rather than the money is what led me to where I am. I was 18 or 19 at the time living in Oregon. And I remember a very, very clear choice. So I had interviewed for a bunch of nine to five jobs. One of them was um, managing a warehouse. And this job, I remember they were going to pay me like, I don't know, 35 grand a year or something like that. 30, 35 grand a year. And it was like, I mean, it was just, stupid money. You know, I had never made more than 12 or 15 grand a year in my entire life. This was just going to like change my, my entire, you know, quality of life. And, but it would have been a nine to five job and I was wanting to ski, you know, five, six days a week. So I would have tossed my, my ski career in the tracks. There's, there's no way I was going to be able to ski on weekends, Saturdays and Sundays and fight the traffic driving up the hood to, you know, try to be, to try to be a, a pro sponsored skier 
you got to quit banging the table, dude. Your oh, microphone. Shit. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Keep going. This is great. Um, and so I, uh, so I uh, just kind of like I, I had a choice to make, and it was either you know make all this incredible money, thirty five grand a year, um, or to um, continue working my odd part time job. I was a mechanic. I was working in a ski shop. I was a part time security guard at one point. Um, and just, you know, continue kind of like being a bum. I was driving weed back from Oregon, Wisconsin. I'd drive like once a month, you know, whatever, five, 10 pounds of weed back. So I was making some money doing that. Um, and so I, I was faced with a, a choice and I, I remember just, just thinking to myself, you know, I'm too, too young to sell down. I can't, I can't do this. And I turned down the job. And so that was a, an early example of being faced with, money or do something you love that doesn't make money and i chose the path of of you know skiing and having you know a little bit more flexible uh, freedom and ability to take time off and go other places other states and ski and that kind of thing so i i went that direction um and so that that direction eventually led to me being a pro skier it led to me developing contacts in the ski industry it led um you know to me uh, having some experience getting involved in some of these companies that I rode for and in their marketing and, um, you know, media and that kind of stuff. And uh, then I was getting more and more hungry for business. And these sponsors that I was riding for, these outerwear sponsors, um, they just weren't letting me, uh, they weren't letting me get involved. I wanted to invest. I wanted to um, help design stuff. I wanted to, you know, get a percentage of equity. I wanted to, to, to have some involvement in in the business of running that company. Um, and none of them wanted anything to do with it. Um, and it really is amazing to me because I think back on it and, you know, I was a, a smart little fucking kid and I was super motivated. I had time, I had ideas that ended up making me a lot of money. Um, and I just wonder what would have happened if one of them had been like, okay, like, let's give it a go. Because I may have gone down a whole another path, like, you know, you know, working with for some other company or giving some minor bullshit. I mean, maybe eventually it would have just not worked out and I would have started my own thing anyway, who knows, but they all told me to go fuck myself. And so um, I did it, did it myself and somehow did it with no money and um, own the company a hundred percent of my, you know, myself. I don't have to uh, check in with anyone about any decision I make. I can do any kind of crazy marketing, any kind of whatever I want. And um, all the money goes in my pocket. Well, your marketing is interesting, right? Like, whereas almost everybody else in the skiing world is, um, they want to portray their, their clothing line as luxurious as you're at the top of the world, that you're in sync with the environment, that you have like special care in some way. And yours is like taking the entire environmental movement and putting a minus sign in front of it and saying like something about the opposite. And I don't mean that you're like degrading the environment. I just mean that you don't place it in this level of holiness that you then try and stand underneath in the halo of. So I think that's just total fucking bullshit marketing. I think it is the most unethical, um, you know, counterproductive phony marketing that you can have creating you know, clothing and outerwear is one of the worst things that you can ever do for the environment. If you want to do something good for the environment, you'd go to Goodwill, you'd buy a piece of shit onesie from the 80s that's used, and you'd wear that for the rest of your life. Um, buying clothing of any kind um, is just awful, awful, awful for the environment, especially when you 
um, are looking at like petroleum-based outerwear and all these coatings and fabrics and it's just, you know, plastic zippers and all this stuff. It is not good for the environment. And these companies that, um, you know, paint this picture that, you know, they're this magical company and, um, and, you know, it's just, it's nonsense. There are companies that I think do try to source, you know, more bamboo fabrics and more uh, recyclable this, that, and the other. And there are companies out there, but at the end of the day, I mean, it's clothing. You're, 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 you're disposable. You're going through it. You're destroying it. You're remaking it. You're buying new shit every year or whatever it is. It's not good for the environment. So when you put that forward as an idea, like uh, to the marketplace, how did they respond to you? I mean, I never was anti-environment. I'm actually extremely environmental. I don't drive a big diesel truck. I, you know, don't use disposable silverware or napkins. I, uh, you know, I don't use paper plates. I, um, I've got, you know, washable uh, hand towels right here. Um, I'm not using straws. I'm not using, I'm just, you know, I'm actually relatively um, environmentally conscious when it comes to my day-to-day life. You know, I recycle and I uh, try not to print a bunch of stuff and excess paper. And, you know, I, I actually do think about this stuff probably more than most people. Um, but to, to have the same marketing um, for my company of, of all these other companies, um, I think it's phony and it's just not interesting. It's just, it's the same as, as all these other companies. So I, you know, I, I, I just never went down that path. I mean, you, when you're a small company um, and nobody's ever heard of you, you have to do something different. You have to do something interesting and unique. Um, and we try to offer extremely high quality products at a very competitive price with features that nobody else, you know, has in the world. Um, and we're only able to offer it at that price because we sell direct and we have a different, you know, business model than most companies. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to do something that sets you apart. And so, you know, I've kind of been uh, a crazy guy my whole life. I'm always doing crazy, extreme stuff. So I got friends who are, you know, doing equally crazy stuff. And so I figured, why not just video the stuff that we kind of do on a day-to-day basis anyway, and put it out there. And, and that's what we did. And our, our first real provocative marketing were the Friday videos, uh, last Friday, this Friday, next Friday, and the apology video. And um, nobody had ever made a video like that in the ski industry. You know, it just wasn't, it had never been done. I mean, the, I think part of it is, um, nobody had the balls to do it, but also the people at these companies, they weren't out there living that lifestyle. They're sitting in an office somewhere, you know, doing emails and, and, and running their business, you know, 12 hours a day, they weren't out there living that life. And so I thought that there was something, something marketable about, um, about kind of promoting and marketing that lifestyle. Um, and you know, I was young, I was 23 when I started the company, um, turned 24 that summer. And we were partying, we were doing drugs, we were, you know, going all over the world. We were, I was, you know, getting my pilot's license, buying airplanes and going to, you know, the Bahamas and renting houses and boats and doing, you know, just, just, we were, you know, living life to the fullest. And so I figured that there was something marketable about that lifestyle. You know, when you say that uh, the the people that were making the marketing decisions were really far away, I was I actually have this hypothesis um, that the world is actually run largely by college party girls that got done with uh, partying in college and then took the safe job. And the only person that a, a chief executive or a marketing person knows that seems young and cool 
is this person that partied for a little while and now all they do is they're on Instagram and they're telling you what's going on in their safe bubble. And mm-hmm. so if you go to a corporation of any kind, no matter how much they want to change or how much they want to be connected, the farthest that they can see is as far as the as the girl that got a, a communications degree and partied her way through school. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I. Uh, it's all just the same boring crap. You know, it's just not. It's not interesting. So your Friday videos would never make muster past any normal corporation. Um, I could try and describe them, but I would probably. I mean, can you imagine if if they had a board meeting, you know, with with ten people, and they sat down? <laughs> all right, I got this idea, Jim. All right, my idea is we're going to have these naked girls with their tits out. We're gonna be pouring milk on them. Um, with their bouncing boobs and slow motion. And then we're going to have some explosions with um, machine guns. We're going to flip a car and jump out of an airplane and then tow somebody on a snowmobile. And then we're going to go to a lake and there's going to be more tits uh, out at the lake. And um, Don't forget the gun shooting. We're going to shoot guns out the window too. Yeah, we're going to shoot guns out of the window. And, you know, I mean, that would not make it very far in a board meeting. They'd just be like, oh my God. Like, and because, you know, if you, if you are a huge company and you're having to market to the masses, you're gonna you're gonna turn a lot of people off by by that kind of marketing. Um, when you're a small company, you're not accessing that that big part of the market. You're not they're not they don't know who you are. They're not seeing anything. So if you come out with some crazy shit and you get a bunch of people talking about it, well, yeah, there's gonna be a bunch of people who aren't super stoked on it, but they're talking about it to their whole circle of friends. They're posting it to their social media, and out of their three thousand followers on Instagram or Facebook. Maybe half of them like it and think it's funny and half of them don't like it. The ones who don't like it don't have to buy it. The ones who do like it, some of them buy it. So it's sort of, you know, you you do create some, you know, some people who aren't stoked on it, but those people talking about it eventually ends up helping you in the long run. Yeah, I mean, it struck me as kind of the Marilyn Manson strategy, right, where there was a group of people that were never going to be around in regular upper middle class high school society. And a guy came along and said, hey, I've got a different way for you. And we're just not going to have anything to do with that culture. And the people people wanted it right, like because it was an answer to a problem that they had that that regular corporate America wasn't answering. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think. uh you know, I've always been just kind of out there in counterculture. And so um, it'd be hard for, you know, I run the, the company, I make marketing decisions. It'd be hard for me to have different marketing. You know, I could try to kind of fake it, but it just wouldn't, you know, it just wouldn't be right. It wouldn't seem genuine. But it's funny because as while I was watching that for the first time um, and having a great time, like I don't think I've ever watched as many marketing videos as I watched of yours. I, it struck me that it wasn't unlike um, I had a commercial sex worker on named Ayella Girl. And uh, I, I remember asking her the question, like the first time you get on camera and, you know, you're doing your cam girl thing. There's no going back to the moment before that, right? right? Like you've yeah. pulled the trigger. There's no putting yeah. the bullet back in there. Yeah. Did you have a hesitation there of like, I'm going to pull no. this trigger? No, I never had any hesitation. And I didn't really, um, you know, I didn't think much of it. We were just videoing the shit that we were doing. And we were so used to doing it that it didn't, it didn't strike me as really that crazy, honestly. Because we were just, that's just what we, I've been doing that for decades. I've been, you know, just doing stupid hoodlum shit and stupid stunts in my whole life. It didn't really occur to me. And when the backlash from that first last Friday video happened, I was like, 
very surprised. You know, I got, I got, what was the backlash? What, yeah. What happened? Oh, I mean, it was, it was crazy. There were people calling in from all over the world. Um, I got pulled over five times in three days. They were trying to press all kinds of um, uh, federal charges uh, on me. I um, got fired from my coaching job. I got banned from the resorts. Um, I was not allowed on um, uh, campus. Um, I got tons of hate mail. And I was like, I was like, whoa, you know, like it, I, I was totally taken back by it. Like I had no, I had no idea that it was going to be like that kind of a backlash. I just thought some kids would be like, oh yeah, like that's tight. You guys are, you know, killing it. Like I just, I, I didn't think that it was going to have this reaction. And so when it did have that reaction, I, I remember like being faced with a choice and I was faced with a very clear choice, actually. Um, and the choice was, um, like, you know, I was employed. I've been uh, coaching the CU Freestyle Ski Team for, like, over a decade. And they said, you know, I, I can save your coaching job, but this video has to come down, like, today. And I remember being like, okay, so, like, this is, you know, this is not going well. There's, there's a lot of people, you know, angry about this video. But there's also a lot of people that aren't. Um, do I want to take this down, apologize and tuck tail, um, or do I want to stand behind it? And I don't think it took me more than two seconds to think about it. And I said, that's fine. You can fire me from the coaching job if you want. The video's not coming down. Um, and so I said, you know, you guys can fuck yourself. If you don't like the video, don't buy my shit. I don't care. Um, and to kind of drive that point home, uh, you know, I made the apology video, which of course didn't apologize for anything. and was a spoof on the, you know, LeBron James, Nike, uh, Nike commercial. Um, and so I just, you know, I just decided to kind of stand my ground. Um, and then, you know, whatever the next year or two years later, we came out with this Friday and we just went like times 10 instead of, you know, me waking up in bed with two naked chicks, I'm waking up under a pile of naked girls and like, we're doing drugs and we're fucking, you know, skydiving and like just everything was like times 10. Um, and so I think at some point I just, um, I just kind of realized that I, I realized that it's better to, to just own it. Um, if, if you, you know, the, the whole like kind of cancel culture, if people sense any kind of weakness, they just, it's like, you know, wolves descending upon you. And so I think you just have to stay strong and people realize that they're just not going to get very far. They're not going to hurt my feelings. I'm not going to you know, cry about it. I'm not going to take down the video. I'm not going to apologize. Um, you know, it's just, it's not going to have, have the effect that they want it to have it. So I take their, their power away from them. Their, their, you know, their cancel culture uh, power. So um, I think that was around the time when I realized that, you know, just do stuff, be smart about it, stand behind it. And hopefully, you know, it gets people talking. You know, it's funny. I think that the the role that you play in culture um, probably is archetypal in some way, because if you're watching cancel culture go on, you figure like, who will stand up to this? How will this stop? And I found myself after watching your videos, I get on Twitter and I'm like, I want to go start. I'm going to go poke some people like that are causing problems. Like you're telling me I, I really, really dislike mask mandates. And for whatever reason, me saying that brings people out of the woodwork to come after me to be like, you have to change your opinion. But they say it in the most like egregious, you're awful, you're killing grandmother, blah, blah, blah. And like uh, you get to a point where you're saying like, the only way that I can respond to you 
is uh, is to somehow like bring myself down to your level. And so th- you're doing something that's really different. You're very forward leaning in that way where you're not waiting to get down to somebody's level. You're just playing the game in a different way. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I don't want to get into a whole thing on politics, but I think that that is why Trump won the first time is because he was much more unapologetic about who he was, take it or leave it kind of a thing. Um, and I think, you know, uh, where things have gone with the with how PC you have to be and how you have to tiptoe around everything, and there's only certain words you can use, and it's just gone way too far. And I think that that's why um, Trump originally was elected, because he was just, you know, not a politician. He was not trying to, you know, say and do exactly the right things. He was just being himself um, and was relatively unapologetic about it. Um, I'm not looking to get elected, so I can be, you know, even more unapologetic about um, about whatever it is that I do. So this the strategy that you're using works unless uh, the wave crashes all the way over and cancel culture gets, you know, all the power. Are you worried about that? No, not at all. Um, the more, um, you know, the, the more the, the whole COVID thing is, I think, also kind of uncovered, you know, two very different groups of people uh, with the mask and no mask thing and just that whole the whole deal. Um, and I think that there will always be free thinking people that refuse to, you know, sort of like get in line and do what they're, they're, you know, supposed to do, um, you know, what the media is telling them to do, what, you know, the politicians or whoever it is, whatever they're telling them, they have a, a little bit of a mind of their own and they think for themselves. And there's also just people out there who don't care. You know, I'm not, I'm not out there, you know, clubbing baby seals to death and, you know, smothering children. Like my marketing is like making funny videos where we don't really take ourselves seriously and like standing on a, on a fucking log in a protected lake that was photoshopped and, you know, pooping in a, in a lake that was photoshopped. Because I'm not out there like killing people. It's like all relatively, you know, minor stuff. So people- But who- your marketing requires that you be comfortable with people literally hating you. Or, or as close to hating as they can of a oh, person no, they, they hate don't know. I have people, you know, protesting in front of my warehouse. <laughs> chocolate dicks in the mail. I got poop uh, sent in the mail. People sent all kinds of crazy hate mail. Um, I've had people spit on my car. They've yelled at me in the street. Um, you know, I mean, there, there's definite, you know, definite hate. People hate me. They want me to die. They, they want me to die in an avalanche. They want me to get shot in the head. They want my dog to die. Um, you know, they, they, they want me to die. Um, what I've realized is, yes, I've taken it to, you know, definitely another level, but people are going to hate you no matter what, the more successful you are, the more well-known you are, um, the more fun you have in your life and other people, you know, see that as you throwing that in their, their faces, they're miserable in their, their parents' basement. They haven't gotten laid in three months or three years. Uh, they're broke and, you know, you're out there living this amazing life, doing all these things that they only wish that they could do. They're going to, a lot of them are going to hate you. Um, it's people who are secure and happy in their lives who don't, you know, who don't care about this shit. They're like, oh, this is cool. So I think it's, it just depends on a person's perspective, but no matter what, there's going to be people that hate you. And so I just had to get comfortable with that, you know, probably about whatever. When I started the company, it was probably like whatever, 11, 12 years ago. I started having to get comfortable with the fact that people are not going to like me and the better that I do and the more that I succeed, the more of those people there will be out there. I think you create more people that are like that because I think that uh, people just need to see how it's done and then it empowers them in some way. 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm, when I was reading about you and you were talking about from one zero to six, you lived in India, you were with hippie parents. It, it makes me think like, uh, you were probably not around the kind of religious mimetic Christian culture that happens in the U S that I think a lot of people, at least the anywhere people, they grew up as like a Christian family or at least the last remnants of it. And then when they got older, they didn't have that. And so they turned that religion into environmentalism. Are you partly inoculated from that because you didn't have the Christian tradition that you were throwing off? I mean, I don't know if that's true or not. I think, I think that that's a bit of a stretch. I think that saying that religious people turned that, you know, uh, that energy into environmentalism is, I, I don't know if that's, that's true or not. I feel like that's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a stretch and, and, and you know, maybe sometimes it's true, maybe not, but I definitely was not, you know, I, I've never been to church. I've never, never, you know, my parents were, I'm technically half Jewish, but I've never been to, you know, a temple or anything. I grew up celebrating Jewish holidays, but um, was definitely not religious in, in any real sense. So when you think about uh, happiness and fun and getting older, what do you think happens uh, like in your 40s, 50s? How, how do you how do you do you keep this life? Do you tra- change up what you that's, want? That's something that I think about like almost every day. Um, and the answer is I don't know. Um, right now, I'm very happy not having kids, not having a wife, um, being, you know, free and I can just do whatever I want. I've got an airplane. I can, you know, I've got the means to go wherever I want in the world on any given day at any moment I can leave my business. I I mean, it is like total freedom. Um, and I think the more money I make in life, the more that freedom will, will even increase. Um, and the lifestyle, you know, uh, the, the quality of life of that freedom will increase. But does it get old at some point? I don't know. Um, I've, you know, been to most places in the world. Um, There are still, you know, a lot of places that I want to go to. But what happens after you go to all those places? Maybe traveling isn't as appealing anymore. Um, Maybe you're sick of, you know, fucking hundreds of chicks and partying and doing the whole thing. I mean, I like don't do any drugs anymore. I don't drink. So that's already kind of like, you know, behind me. It's just not, not interesting. Um, was it difficult for you to quit that? Oh, no, no. I mean, I was a pothead when I was a kid. Um, and then I had a few experiences where I got like way too high on a gravity bong and just like ruined it for me. And I never smoked weed again. Um, and then I was like totally sober from like, um, I parted in high school and then from like 18 to 24, I was like completely sober because I was broke. I couldn't afford to go to bars. I couldn't afford to buy alcohol, drinks, drugs. Like there was no way when I was, when I was transporting weed across the country, I did not smoke weed. It was strictly a business thing. I literally did not, you know, smoke at all. Um, so from 1824, I couldn't afford to do any of those things. That was like not in the budget. Um, then when I started my company, that was like the first time where I like had a little bit of, you know, disposable income. And so we started, you know, uh, we started doing a lot of ecstasy probably twice a week, um, twice, twice, three times a week, even ecstasy for like two years, which were probably the best two years of my life. Um, and you know, I was productive. I was killing it. I was buying like six grand worth of Molly at a time, 98% pure Molly and giving it out to all of my friends. And we were, you know, renting houses and taping blankets over the windows and renting speakers and lights. And we were just like, you know, there, there was some good time for sure. I think those 
help real time help make me kind of who, who I am. But after a year or two of that, you know, your tolerance builds up. You start having to do so much drugs, and you just you just know it's not good for you. Um, and so, just one day, I was just like, ah, I'm over this, and I basically never did Molly again. I've done it like maybe once now, you know, ten years. Um, and then there was like a year or two where then I got you know get into coke, and uh, that was like you know coke's a weak drug. It's just essentially like drinking a Red Bull is fucking worthless, but you know, Coke's kind of the cool thing for a year or two and that gets old and just kind of the same old scene of people that aren't really going anywhere and doing anything. And so then I never, you know, really did that again. And I don't know, it's just like none of it, none of it is interesting for very long. And so I, I, I had zero problem. I've never been addicted to anything in my life. I think I could do heroin right now and never do it again. Um, so no, I was never, never had any trouble getting off anything. And, uh, Man, what do you want to see with your company? What's what's your uh, where do you want to take it? What do you hope that it becomes? Um, I don't know. Um, I would like it to grow, but um, you know, I'm doing this. I've got employees, but I don't have any other, you know, people that are are, are kind of leading and pushing the company. Um. And I don't do any sales. Um, I've kind of just been very slowly growing the company since the onset. And I could maybe like push it harder, but it would require a lot of my time to, to like grow it into some humongous thing. And I think I would lose out on a lot of good years of my life doing that. Um, so I've got now, you know, a very well-oiled, efficient machine. We make money, we do well. Um, it doesn't take any huge amount of my time. Um, and so it's, you know, here's an example of kind of choosing, um, lifestyle and passion over money. I mean, you know, I'm sure I could, there's a lot of things and not just with, with the Vertigo business. I've got other side hustles that I, that I have. Um, I could push, you know, any number of those a lot harder and could have been pushing those a lot harder for many years. And, um, you know, I, I've got a very good quality of life. I'm, I'm very appreciative for what I have and I've worked hard for it. Um, you know, is it worth being one of these people that, that just works, you know, eight or 12 hours a day, five, six days a week and doesn't get to enjoy your life? Like, you know, I, I started the company in my early twenties. I'm in my mid thirties now. And, um, you know, these are like the best years of your life. So you need to spend them sitting in a, in a dark office with no windows and doing emails and calls, or you're going to get out there and, and do some stuff in the world. So I, I want the company to keep growing, but I'm not willing to, um, you know, to, to, to really do much more than I'm doing now to, to get it there. So if there was somebody else who came along who had some magical, huge distribution deal, um, I would consider, you know, giving them some equity or whatever. If, if there was somebody out there that was a good fit that could, hey, you know, has, have some magic solution to, to just explode the company that wouldn't require, um, you know, much or any of my time, I'd consider it. But um, where it's at now is fine. I'm happy with it. So earlier you had talked about uh, like happiness and, you know, like what you were doing. When you describe happiness, what, what is that to you? What does that mean? Um, it's, it's taken me a long time to kind of learn what that is for me. Um, and I've really only really figured it out fully. Um, I would say in the last probably 
year or two. Um, and the last few years of my life have been maybe some of the best. Um, but for me, happiness is um, freedom. Um, freedom to go where I want, do what I want, buy what I want, see what I want, eat what I want, hang out with who I want. Um, and just, just kind of not have to, um, to answer to anyone. That's interesting. I, so I, I did not live anywhere near the wildlife that you did, but I lived in Africa for a while along the coast of California, a bunch of different places. And, uh, I, um, the, the freedom is the opposite of what I want now. Like, uh, and, and maybe that's not quite fair, but, um, you know, you have a child and it's really difficult for anybody to tell you that that will be what you want. But like, as soon as we're done, I'm going to go upstairs and I'm going to get to hold my baby and she's, I'm going to do everything I can to make her laugh. And it's just an interesting thing because, uh, I, I, uh, I have no idea if that's what other people want. And so I'm always interested in hearing what other people want and what makes them happy because I, I think, uh, I think it wouldn't have made me happy at a different time in my life. I think it would have made me miserable actually. And I think that that is, that is a key, key thing. Key concept is, um, doing the right things in life at the right times, because, you know, you have a kid when you're 18, it might ruin your life. Um, so I think, and I've got a lot of friends who, uh, who have kids and some of them I think are more or less stoked on, on what that means for their life. Um, and I totally see the benefit of having kids, you know, creating someone that looks just like you and you can mold and shape and teach and, you know, get to kind of share life with, and, you know, when you're older, you get to hang out with them. I, I very much see, uh, the value in that. Um, I maybe see less value in that than a lot of people because my family was shitty. Um, and so like, yeah, I'm the middle child of seven. So for me, it was like kids make sense in some deep way. Yeah. If, if you had like, you know, this amazing childhood where you have all these you know amazing memories and you, you had, you know, these Christmases together and coming down the stairs and there's packages under the tree. If you've got that, you know, in your brain about family and kids, then you, you maybe would be more stoked on it. My reality was different. Um, so, you know, I, I, I see the value in that and I'm open to that. Um, but for me, I don't think that that would be what I would want for a minimum of another 10 years. Um, I can see when I'm 45, um, like, you know, settling down, and I mean, not settling down. I don't think I'll ever settle down, but when I'm 45, you know, finding a chick and uh, having two kids, maybe, but um, I mean, it's very possible. Like if you ask me right now, you have to decide whether you're gonna have kids or not. I'd say, no, I'm not having kids. I would have hundred percent been exactly where you're at. Have you ever had your heart like broken? Has a chick ever just like destroyed of you? Of course, oh, yeah. over and over. <laughs> that's the kicker at least for me i mean until i met the woman that was like not she had no, she didn't think what i thought was clever she was not like entertained by it like all of a sudden bang i was hooked i mean every girl that i've dated since i was uh you know 15 years old has wanted to marry me um and uh if at any point i wanted to you know, marry a, um, cool, smart, hot chick with rich family and whatever. I could have done that, um, a long time ago. And I definitely dodged some, some major bullets, um, by not doing that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think like you are the ultimate uh, taming of the beast, right? Like, and that's uh, in some ways all the way down in the archetypal of a of a woman to want to like capture the the wild beast that nobody else yeah. could. They always they always think that they're gonna they're gonna somehow change me or, or tame me, and it just never never works out very well. <laughs> <laughs> well, David Lashman, I uh, I had no idea how this conversation would go, and I figured that if the New Yorker was gonna kind of paint you as this. Uh, you know, nice guy, kind of misguided pariah that you were going to probably be somebody I liked. And this has been really, really uh, interesting and entertaining. Well, thanks for having me on. <laughs>